Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. COVID shot uh, plus mm. the flu shot. I saw something that I'm not sure if it was induced by the fever and just achiness. Oh. I saw a graphic novelization of The Diary of Anne Frank in a store. And it huh? was kind of. Di- <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, there's okay. more. Okay. <laughs> I'm waiting. It was done in a manga style. Oh my God. Um, and I'm just had the thought, why did why wouldn't you just call it anime Frank? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I didn't feel bad for laughing, but that's very funny. Um It was right there. It was right there, yeah, I guess. They, you might as well. Yeah. God, the novel yeah. the graphic. I mean the only reason I was the only reason I was in, even in that store was um, it was a game shop, and uh, my brother wants uh, Settlers for oh, uh, the holidays. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Fair enough. Weird that that's in the same store, but I guess makes sense. Yeah, there's uh, there's overlap there. People that want, uh, you know. Sure. <laughs> graphic novelizations of... <laughs> of- of famous books i guess lo- i would totally read the anime the, sorry the manga <laughs> read the manga right. of moby dick i would read that too i wonder if that exists that would actually be amazing to be honest mm-hmm. that would probably cut down a lot of the fat of the book uh mm-hmm. huh oh yeah mm-hmm. you know pages that are devoted <laughs> you know just to a certain type of ship you could just have a picture of the ship yeah we don't need to describe it especially with all the different types of whales that's just a panel Literally. Oh yeah. yeah. That's, oh yeah, yeah. Get yeah. Get get Alan Moore on this. If if this doesn't exist, should we be doing this? I guess we're not really <sighs> illustrator artists any. Well, I'm yeah, not as much we're anymore. not. Mm-hmm. I I know mm-hmm. bookbinding, but that doesn't right. help a ton. I mean, um, hmm. okay. There's a project here. We'll we'll, we'll workshop. Yeah. It. We'll okay. Workshop well, it. we we should. Yeah, and it's it's public domain. Is it? Huh. That's good to know. Actually, I didn't know it was public domain. I mean, it has to be. It's it old. came out I in the mean, 1860s. Hmm. Right? 1850s? Yeah, yeah. 18, no, 1850, 1860, yeah. We did a whole yeah, yeah. tour on like, this. Great, Ga- Great Gatsby is public domain. It's kind of crazy, huh? Okay, yeah. well, that's going to file that in the things that I need to know in the back of my mind. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, uh, but speaking of things that uh, sh- that took the world by storm, uh, like uh, <laughs> I thought you were which which books, Zan? which one? <laughs> all of all of these books, all of the the world of Catan, right? Um, right. Yes, uh, there are a lot of uh, blinking lights around. A lot right of blinking now. lights. Our electric bill is going to be nuts. I'm so sorry, but mm. um, yeah, we got a bunch of vintage gear with uh in this exhibition here that i've curated for us and i'm very very excited about it because this is some gear that i have been uh 
wanting forever. And I still technically don't own because these are on loan from uh, all types of vintage stores. So we can't really. This is a very self-serving exhibit, it sounds like. For it's you. for the people. It is for the people. <laughs> we should know the instruments that have formed some of the hit songs of like all these different musical eras. All right. I just happen mm-hmm. to like them. And I got the budget to do it, so I went for mm. it. But yes, so I have curated a, a, a selection of vintage synthesizers ranging from the seventies to the late eighties that have had some significant importance within the, those decades of music, but then also even our recent decades of music into current day, all the way from you know synth pop leads to you know synth wave and then also into some ambient stuff as well these Mm -hmm. different types of synths have really been a crucial uh, honestly a crucial of crucial importance in i think the music industry in general and -hmm. they're also just really cool looking now there's tons of other ones here but i have highlighted specifically four of them that really capture the different types of synths to go over and what they all did because from polyphony to monophonic synths to how many vcos you can fit in one little you know machine or i guess a large machine at that time there's all kinds of different versions of these, but some of them were the forerunners for what we even have today and what will eventually just be programmed in Logic and GarageBand for you to use. So it's pretty exciting. But yeah, they're also just really cool looking, right? Yeah. No, this is all very... It's pretty incredible, like, looking at old synths, and they have that um that thing that i think you and i both love where it straddles the line between something that sort of looks like a cruder technology yeah and yet it also has this air of futurism about it yes i i think the the interesting thing to me about synthesizers uh this is coming from someone that um knows very little compared to you about them is that there's there's this split right where right. synth is so prevalent in pop music you know post mid 80s onward um right like it is it is essential to to so much popular music um uh radio hits you know mm-hmm. but the thing is when i think of synthesizer enthusiasts they're very <laughs> much the uh <laughs> uh I'm, I'm i honestly am picturing my my old uh bass player uh mm. terrapin you can check out his synthwave music but nick uh terrapin uh <laughs> uh his his uh, stage name of right. course of course uh he is Love him to death. He is, I think, the 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 pinnacle of what you picture when you think of the people that are really into synthesizers. Okay, He's that's fair. Just this quiet, uh, brooding, smirking person that just, you know, will stand there with his arms crossed, you know, grinning ever so slightly, you know, listening to the noise of the synthesizer. <laughs> I and just... Like, like this is like, do, do you understand like, yes. like sort of what, what is fascinating to me? Like yeah. on the one hand synth, I think bright colors, I think ns, 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 sure. like, you know, dance music. On the other hand, I picture a bunch of guys standing around, <laughs> uh, the community room in a library silently nodding at mm. each other as mm-hmm. they listen to this. And it's like, oh yeah, that's a, 
uh, an envelope filter. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Just open that thing up, man. I like, mean, the, like yeah. the, the, the suitcase synth versus, you know, the, the pop star. Like, you're not wrong. That's pretty ag. Well, okay, because, like, <laughs> most of what I've learned, and this is pretty depressing, came from just when I would research gear on, like, uh, YouTube comments and Reddit posts and, like, you know, the other... Ge- what are they? It's gear... Electronauts and stuff like that. I, I have just memorized all the names of these insanely weird forums. Um, bad bad thing to do, by the way. Everybody has an opinion, and it doesn't mean they're right. So that's important. But the amount of nuance and mm. and insane arguments I have seen over whether or not three VCFs, which are voltage controlled filters, are enough, or like the difference between eight oscillators versus sixteen on a synth, and like how different that sounds. It's just like. Guys, we are talking the difference of $2,000 versus $3,000. This is still expensive regardless. <laughs> like, it is... I just want to know if it's worth it. Do you know? So but it, it like, is a lot is of it, that. Th- this, this all seems very complicated. And it all is to insanely make, complicated. Is it? Is it worth it to make such awful music? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the... <laughs> <laughs> is it is it worth all of these different parts to make music that really no one wants to listen to? This is this is the hard hitting questions. <laughs> well, what kind of music? I mean, what kind of music? Like pop music or like weird noise music? Which I'm also right. kind of into. Right. So no, it I, I'm being I'm being a little uh, okay. a little harsh on it. Uh, but um, don't worry. I guess I guess the thing is with synth music. I understand at least with analog synth. Yeah. Um it tends to lean more towards people that like prog, you know? Um and hmm. and people that, you know, are listening to like Emerson Lake and Palmer. Oh, it's funny. Know? I got them on here somewhere. I got them in my research. <laughs> yes, they they have they used a very specific synth we'll go right. over. Right. But but that was um like prog musicians saw you know now now it's a little bit of a throwback uh like you know every movement of some kind of futurism because it is rooted in the time period it uh comes out of but um synth synthesizers you know the 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 fact that there's no uh acoustic component the way there was with yeah uh you know electric pianos electric guitars um it really did sort of seem like music of the future. And I think a lot of those artists uh, sort of flattered themselves with it. And the fascination with it, like um, in, in the in the 70s, when this stuff was first coming out, it sort of seemed like, oh, wow, you mean you can make a computer, uh, you know, if, if you're Wendy Carlos, like you can have a computer play a Bach piece uh well it's yeah i guess that's fair it's a little more complicated than that but uh, but 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 also like like prog musicians saw themselves as like the answer to the rock star like right like they they felt like this was the direction that like the music artist was supposed to go in i mean we're entirely wrong to be honest because like now instead of using expensive synths, it's just expensive plugins on a lot of pop music, which is somehow worse. But we'll get into it. We'll get well, like I guess it's, we'll get into I it. Guess Please, 
Yeah, enlighten enlighten me about synthesizer. Oh, I it's gonna be my pleasure, Zan. I've already bothered you so much with my like wish list on <laughs> reverb about what I will dream of, and we're gonna. I think I think rather than me describe it with all of your questions, I think it's a good jumping off point to just start going one by one through these different synths I have um, marked for us to go over because they all are from different time periods and they offer different perspectives into the type of music being made. So let's start yeah. over here, if we can all come over on this way. We're going to crown around these uh, three Juno synths. And hmm. what we're going to start with here, and I'm going to be looking at all three because they're relatively the same thing, is the the famous, super important, super overpriced, but <laughs> Very good and incredibly important synthesizer, the Juno 6, which, yes, I'm kind of a fan, so maybe I'm overflating it, but it is a very good synth. So the Juno 6 by Roland and came out in 1982 through 1984 because afterwards we got the Juno 60 and the Juno 106. They are slightly different from each other, just improvements. The Juno 106 is the most recent. The Juno 6 is the oldest. So I see. what this is, it's an eight-voice polyphonic synth and it was designed to be a low-cost solution to other synths like the dave smith or the um, sequential prophet 5 and even roland's own jupiter 8 mm -hmm. we'll talk about the sequential prophet 5 in a little bit the jupiter 8 was it's an incredibly powerful polyphonic synth that is insanely expensive and it was expensive even then in the early 80s so i should probably define this to what polyphonic means is it can you can play more than one note at a time. So synths have oscillators in them, which are it's electricity creating the sound. So it's creating a sine wave or a triangle wave or different types of sound waves with one noise. One oscillator equals one sound source. Two oscillators, you now have two, three, and so on. Eight uh -huh. means you have eight sounds coming out of the synth. Right. If you have eight, you can essentially play eight notes on the key bed that's located in the Juno. You can play it like a piano. You can play it like a piano, exactly. But you can only play eight of those keys at a time. So as soon as you play nine, the first key gets replaced by the ninth key. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's an important thing here because polyphony was like new. And it was this is the first time it's like relatively affordable because it was a thing that existed but was pretty expensive and revolutionary. But now one can have it on a key bed that you could take to a concert and you could take to live events, smaller gigs, record in a studio, have it at home. So yeah. it was it, it, the, the way that Roland packaged this, packaged this in the Juno 6 and through the 106 was really important. It had, so moving from there too, it had digitally controlled oscillators, which aid in the tuning of the instrument and onboard VCFs, which are voltage controlled filters, as I said, LFOs, which are low frequency oscillators, and even two chorus effects amongst other really useful abilities for sound design and playability. Chorus is also for, I know Zan knows this because of guitar pedals, but a chorus is a modulator effect. So it makes things kind of warbly. It's very fun. So it's the, it's the sound you hear uh, on Kurt Cobain's guitar pretty often especially yeah, it's on a, Nevermind. It's it's the it's the effect he has on his guitar for Come As You Are. Exactly. Yeah. Very very 80s. Very very 80s mm -hmm. but so cool. So wasn't wasn't there uh a little bit of some controversy early on with these types of synthesizers like early early synth musicians I was kind of under the impression like felt that the addition of a piano keyboard uh like was 
taking them away from what the mission of the synthesizer was, which was to remove the idea of of traditional instrumentation. Hmm. Look at that. You know more about synths than I do. Um, I honestly have no idea, but that sounds about right. If I've if I've met a modular artist, <laughs> that sounds with, correct. Yeah, I'm I'm sure for for the research of this, there were plenty of message boards. Uh, and oh uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm gonna get yelled at for this. But I mean, you don't well, you don't want to go on uh, <laughs> on uh, eight voice chan. Oh Jesus, no. <laughs> oh, I mean four four voice chan would also work. There's four voice uh, since. Oh okay, yeah. So, eight voice chan is just where you go for the, it's the uh, elevated the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god um this jesus but yeah uh well okay so there's also a debate happening in the synth world before this too which is the west coast synthesis versus east coast synthesis or Eurorack versus like bukla easels which are incredibly mm. different from one another and they can't be combined so that's a whole did other have, rabbit did hole this have did this have the uh the body count that east coast west coast rap had uh, i don't know about that but uh <laughs> but it was just a bunch of nerds it's, it's a bunch just, of nerds it's arguing funny. yeah no they're they're synth, they're synth people they're nerds well, it's it's and but they're not even like it's not even like music gear nerdage it's like computer programmers because remember like to build a synth mm -hmm. requires like coding and like knowledge right. of how to solder things like it is literally right. like because the thing is uh, it's kind of like electric guitar parts in a way because you are especially if it's analog you have to yeah. build the electric parts to move a current through it. Like it needs yeah. to function. It's very, very complicated and complex, but West, we won't spend too much time on this. Cause again, it's a little out there and complicated and insane, but East coast synthesis functions with Euro rack. And it's a, it's a way of running different things, which you have your oscillator mm -hmm. sound source moving to a filter to be filtered, which cuts the low, the low frequencies versus the high frequencies. Then you can move it to like an LFO, which, you know, will modulate it or a modulation source or a sequencer or other things as you progress through this like linear fashion west coast i i don't even use west coast but it functions very differently you can patch things in a different way and it allows for more flexibility but it has its own crazy system so hmm. it is very much california lifestyle versus new york lifestyle in a weird way and then like you get people like moog that come along and they kind of take that analog modular synth and then to package it in synthesizers so the synths I have highlighted are essentially taking those concepts, like taking your Iraq, taking West Coast synthesis as ideas and putting them into machines that one could bring into a studio and like anyone who's a key player could pretty much figure it out or also allowing for composers to come in and use them on soundtracks, which is going to be really, right. all of these synths are used in some sort of manner for sound design and soundtracks too. It's not just right. for stage presence because also think about it like when you have early modular synths you know these things are on walls and they're huge yeah. and it's just like it costs so much money and electricity to be plugging right. these things in because again it's all electric currents running through mm -hmm. so i i could very much see that being to your point of like the people who are into uh -huh. that type of music you know are annoyed at like, well, like this you type could, of you style. could understand like the tremendous investment it was to fill a room full of these computers yeah dude, in, in order to make these things i'm picturing you know that the um the photo of pete townsend from the yeah. who in the the room sized synthesizer that you know he 
composes the the um the sort of main line to Baba O'Reilly. On, yeah. No, it's uh, it's crazy. Or, or again, I mean, even going back to what you were saying uh, about you know needing to also know um like so much science in order to put these yeah. things together. Again, I think of Wendy Carlos because I believe she had, in addition to a degree in music, she I believe she also had a degree from Brown in physics. Oh wow. You know, yeah, like, like that. That was. It, it seems like what sort of was going into this technology. It's, yeah, it's a lot of science. <laughs> I, I, I could, I, I could understand. You know, suddenly you sit down in front of a prophet or a Juno, and it's like, well, what did, what did we just do all that for then? Right. You know? Well, like that's, the, and it depends on what kind of person you are, I think, too, and what kind of like m- philosophy you come from. I mean, personally, I think the prophets and junos or like you know these these key bed synths are an easier way to get sound design and sounds out of something like that but modular Mm -hmm. synthesis and modular synthesizers just allow for that experimentation to just go beyond musical scale limitations because as soon as you put a key bed on something you're limited to those keys that is your sound right right i mean you can get crazy I'm, i'm being a little dramatic but like i think um one of the things that was so important was that these synths could kind of do both. So when when I get to this next synth too, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but you know, in continuing with this, also, you know that the Juno, the Juno kind of also got a little criticism because of the digital aspects to it. And this this is something that comes up today. There is a huge argument between analog and digital synths. It's very dumb, but I get it. But it's very dumb mm. because it is just the difference between it, it's it's a subtle sound difference. It, I guess it would be like, I mean, it, it's like arguing like that, solid states versus tubes. Yeah, perfect. G- good example. I mean, but yeah. like take your most expensive of both. They both have their purpose and they both function well, but they're they're just going to offer different things and that's fine. It doesn't make one mm-hmm. better than the other necessarily because right. there's some amazing digital synths, there's some terrible digital synths, there's some amazing analog synths, there's some pretty garbage ones. So it honestly it's all up to taste. But anyway, that's another thing mm-hmm. that's important and this also gets into play with why these synths are so popular. So mm-hmm. you know, just continuing with a little bit of the history of the Juno series from Roland. Um, so this was actually used on uh, some very hit songs, such as Take On Me by AHA. So that's one that we probably all know. And oh, also okay. Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper during the 80s. And it mm-hmm. actually, though, ended up having its own resurgence in the 90s, but with house and techno artists. So that's right. its first resurgence. That's when it's first used for. It's more like house music, early techno. And then mm-hmm. here's, though, where it gets even more show spotlight, which it gets its... I think this is its most popular era besides the 80s is during the 2010 indie era because this mm-hmm. synth is used like everywhere. You had Tame Impala using it, Mac DeMarco, LCD Sound System, Disclosure, Neon Indian, St. Vincent, Toru Yimoy, and just tons of other artists that I'm missing. So really... What, what was like uh, MGMT using? Uh, probably this and The Prophet and a bunch of other stuff, I'm sure, and some yeah. Korgs. I mean, MGMT just has a ton of synths. And right, same with right. like uh, M83, you know, all these M bands. But uh, no, <laughs> I, I, I think I think M- MGMT might be using a... Um, oh, I can't remember. It might be a, a, a sequential, like a Prophet of sorts, and then also a right. Juno. 
Here's the thing, though. Really, you could argue that a lot of these different bands record it with them, especially if you are more in that indie scene, because yeah. they're really good at cutting through rock bands. So mm-hmm. because you have a bass guitarist, maybe, or you have bass, you have drums, and then you have two guitars, let's say, let's be generous, you have rhythm and lead. Yeah. It's hard sometimes to find the niche there because all yeah. of those frequencies are being taken up. But the yeah, Juno cuts yeah. through the high end and the middle. So it fits in in a really mm-hmm. nice place that's often left kind of vague and like yeah, and cuz yeah. if you if it was like the the Prophet has difficulty being in a in a rock band because it's more bass heavy. But the Juno is not necessarily bass heavy. It's in the mid and the high. So it cuts right through. That's why they're always well, used. I I think a great example would probably be like, you know, to take it, you know, uh, towards, you know, two very mainstream uh, acts. I think of, you know, the Cars. Yes. Uh, you know, a, 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 a band that, you know, has guitar riffs, but has very famous synth lines that, yeah. that cut through the mix, like you're saying. And honestly, the Killers. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, think think about think about that synth line that just rides through Mr. Brightside. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, all, I mean, I think I think all the stuff off off that off Hot Fuss. Oh yes, no, it's really useful for that. But then they like it. It, it absolutely can carry its own, and other synths do this as well. They that's why they have their position in bands, honestly. But a lot well, of t- I I think I think it also. It it takes that ear to know how to mm. apply it correctly because yes. maybe the thing that people because synths do kind of sound harsh. It's almost like too pure of a sound. It doesn't have if you're just playing it by yourself. It's hard to at least for me as as someone that doesn't know very much. <laughs> you gotta about lower it. that like envelope, every, my guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta, I I need to be lowering the envelope. But I think of like the times that I've like played with synths in music stores. Yeah, and it just sort of comes out as this very harsh. Mm. You know, you gotta tame it. Um, yeah, and I don't necessarily hear it as something that you, you you need to have like almost the vision to understand how to apply it musically uh if you're you know mm. using just these very these very basic uh synths like that I think. Well, yes, you you for sure need the vision to know how to do with it. You also just need the time to like sit there and figure out what the heck you want it to sound like. Because they're that's the thing. They're really pow like you can you can essentially if it's the right synth, like a Juno, let's say, you can turn this thing from really house driven choppy bass lines to yeah. synth wave, crazy eighties future sounds, to then right. really indie warbly type things too. And it's all mm-hmm. on how you're modifying your filters, how you're modifying your envelopes and your LFOs and what how fast they're moving or how slow it is because this also has um this synth and i think pretty much all of these have like adsr which is attack decay sustained mm-hmm. release i almost forgot uh attack if you have your attack all the way up that's the harsh and very loud noise but if you yeah. spread it out it's slow so it's a balance mm-hmm. of like how you're going to move and spread now harsh synths were also just like popular and they still kind of are 
um, just that noise in general. I mean, I'm thinking of yeah. like Igor, you know, Tyler the Creator's album in the first yeah, track. Yeah. Like that synth is that's a saw wave that's just coming right through, yeah, and it sounds amazing. Yeah. But it's like, ooh, you know, it's got it's aggressive. But then other times you can really pull that back and turn it ambient. Yeah, so it, it honestly just depends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what do you think that that die off in popularity and then resurgence? Like, do you attribute oh, that yeah. to like to grunge? You know, like a huh. um, a re- a rejection of eighties pop. Yeah, I think so. Actually, I think it's I think it's wanting just that grungy sound and then moving into the sort of early two thousands, wanting the rock band or the punk band, not really yeah. wanting synth or if you have synth it's in like metal or it's in other categories it's not really in or i mean i should i should be honest synth was there it has its own thing but when we talk about popular music it didn't really fit that and then you know you get like phoenix and you get like Mm -hmm. uh, modest mouse and some other people that just start using these electronic instruments and suddenly it's become like the most popular instrument to have on tour if you play that kind oh, of yeah. music you know totally but, well I, I i think even the um the blues revival that we've had since the you know the kind of late uh late aughts 2010s like i think yeah white stripes black keys the pack ad i can't help but think of that fuzzy guitar as a guitar responding to synth music mm, um yeah actually that's a good point and i mean the, the black keys and uh and all of those bands uh do use uh synth in some of their uh songs but they are you think of them as guitar bands but like what gold on the ceiling is probably the most famous black keys song yeah and that has a synth hook is that a synth um, i always thought that was the guitar I'm pretty sure it's a it's it's a synth. I mean, well, huh. I mean, it makes not, sense. <laughs> uh, Icky Thump by the White Stripes. Yeah, that's synthesizer. Oh wow. Huh. Um, and you know, combined with Jack White's guitar playing, which he has to switch back and forth when they do it live, it's insane. Oh, God. Um, but it it is interesting the 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 sine wave of yeah. popularity. Yeah. Uh, because. Like right now we're having this moment where a lot of people have reevaluated um things that fell out of favor uh in the 80s uh you know into the 90s like and and even earlier like we're looking at the way disco fell out of favor uh you know uh right and you know transitioned into other kinds of pop and stuff and we look at that now and we want to look at like oh why why you know, why was there uh, this rejection of this popular music? You know, one read is that, oh, it was, you know, just too revolutionary because it was, you know, a genre dominated by uh, queer people and people of color and women. And I can understand that read, but I also think people that weren't, you know, young people that were looking for the next thing are always going to react to something Mm. that completely dominates the market like that, where disco was so ubiquitous that it, it almost consumed the entire music industry, you know, like, like, and, and I totally get its significance and everything, but like when every musician 
and every single corner was like being pushed to do disco, of course you're going to have a societal rejection right. of something that just seemed like a given that it was going to be popular. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, it's kind of a shame that it's like all the different types of instruments got stuck up in that argument because I think mm-hmm. I think there is... I mean, I think that this is a separate conversation too, but this is one of the flaws of like when you don't have something like the internet or sound like or like a band camp or something where we can just look when, at when, everything. Yeah, when you're you're relying on mass culture to yeah. get the culture. Yeah, exactly. Because there's like other bands yeah. making music, but unless you're really into music, it's hard to find it. You know, because like yeah. new wave exists at this time. Oh yeah, and like all kinds of other very you know reverb chorus and synth based stuff with guitars that is so interesting but you you know unless it's like i guess the cure that's not the cure is it the cure yeah and like joy division you're really that's probably it mm-hmm. that like make it the big names um right but yeah and like but here but here's also the crazy thing too with like the junos mm-hmm. now because they are yes. very popular still like you can go on reverb and buy one the thing is they're not making them anymore. So there's whatever's oh. left over is what was made in the in in uh Whoa. in uh 1984. Like they just do not have any new ones. So it's it's cuz everything Roland made, sorry, this is my diss at Roland. Everything is just not as good. It's just not as mm. good and it's more money sometimes or it's less money but like worse. And I uh-huh. I think if Roland genuinely made the Juno again, like differently obviously cuz parts I think mm-hmm. it would be like their best selling sense. I just don't know why they won't do it. It's because they make like yeah. they have the new one, but it's not it's not the same. Well, yeah, because I, I, I do occasionally see vintage rolling gear and I'm like, oh, this is this actually looks pretty interesting and stuff. But like a lot of that type of equipment, you look at it and you're like, the second something breaks on this, it's going to be near impossible to find a replacement. I saw a TikTok the other day that just filled me with so much anxiety <laughs> over watching it it's this couple they uh they restore vintage Wurlitzers oh my uh, god electric pianos whoa and the pretty much all of their parts have to come from this place that's selling old stock uh this warehouse that someone has that um like when the factory shut down and they stopped making them, uh, these guys bought up all the inventory and were selling Smart. it out of a warehouse. Um, and the where they uh, retired or something, they sold the warehouse and all the inventory in it was going to be thrown out. Oh, wow. So this couple drives 17 hours to go and get it. Oh, my God. And they cannot get all of it. But you know what they could fit in their car? We're just tons and tons of filing cabinets and in those filing cabinets were like every were instructions uh for every part oh my of, god uh of Wurlitzer so theoretically with the things that they got and they're now going to digitize you theoretically have a blueprint for these things but oh my god all that stuff that probably just got thrown out that, that sucks it, that would be so hard to replace. Oh yeah. No, it's nuts. Like and and you know that just reminded me too like one of the reasons I I I don't even know if I would ever invest in a Juno and if you want to invest in a Juno and especially a 106 cuz they're the cheapest, uh something to keep in mind. They have cartridges built into them that create some of the sound parts. I don't know exactly what it does. I'm not a gear guy with that, 
but mm. uh, they break down over time, and most Uh-oh. of the Junos that have those don't work, or they will not work in a few months, depending on when you're buying it. So, if you buy one, double check with the person who's selling it that they actually <laughs> fixed it, or address the fact that it needs to be fixed, and get a discount, or... You know, make sure it's actually certified that it was fixed because uh, you can end up spending a lot of money and it's broken in like two days or a month or a year. It's like a ticking time bomb. Now, Zan, I want to play mm. this game with you, actually, uh, because Ooh, I can I can, I can I can finally do this. And it's going to be because uh, I'm making this up right now. Guess the price of overpriced gear. Oh, yeah. OK. OK. Yeah. So how much do you think? We're just going to lump these together because it's going to be a little too specific. How much do you think a Juno, let's go with like the 6106 costs. What do you think the ballpark range is? Um, ooh, oh, this is so hard. Um, you knowing nothing about this, this yes. ecosystem at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm trying, here's, here's my thing is I try to think in terms of, um, Usually when I try to think of pricing instruments, I think of it in terms of how many does the typical musician have? Mm, guitar players. That's a smart idea, actually. Guitar, yeah. Even with the way guitars are marketed, even new ones, I feel like they're still priced with the idea that guitar players, and they're kind of right, will keep buying <laughs> more guitars. very true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whereas, like, basses are, I feel like, priced with the idea that basses don't go through as many drums are definitely priced with the idea that you don't get uh you you would not have that many drum kits a synth i assume you wouldn't oh gosh um i'm gonna guess Mm -hmm. i'm gonna guess three grand oh okay okay not a little bit more well i guess you wouldn't be entirely wrong on some of those but it's uh, you know Give or take around two thousand as a base point, but I'll take three grand. Okay. I've seen a okay. Juno for three grand. A Juno six would cost okay. about three thousand. So okay, okay. So nice. so if if I was bargaining for a Juno at a garage sale, I would have just uh you know way overshot not... it. Way overshot oh, okay, it. Okay. I think I don't think right. they're worth three thousand dollars right now, but uh-huh. because they're so popular, they're worth over that. Uh, a Juno okay. 106 can cost you. I've seen them for two grand on Reverb. That's pretty Ooh, consistent. Okay, okay. So, if you find one and they don't mm. know how much it costs, talk them down. <laughs> this is because I'm just tired of people overpricing gear that's been the same price right. since the 80s. Because it's mm-hmm. literally that's how much it cost around then. Maybe slightly yeah. less or more. So. We'll continue this game, too, because there's some other yes. synths I want to okay. go over. So moving just slightly along so we can fit these in. Uh, my next synth over here that I wanted to go over with you is a very popular one, and it's a full. Mm-hmm. It's called the Yamaha CS80. So oh, not okay. as widely used on stage or, like, in other areas. Uh, this actually got its... This is this synth is the most famous because of its use on by Vangelis on the Blade Runner soundtrack. And it has... Oh. It's actually widely sought for the sound. So it's actually... Okay. It's a fully analog synth with eight voice polyphony, and it was released in 1977. So mm-hmm. the thing is, though, this is a pretty big synthesizer. This has lots of buttons on it. It's got lots of features, lots of crazy mm-hmm. effects, and it's, mm-hmm. it's large. So it would probably take up... If you had a small bedroom, it'd probably be about the size of like a small bed um so you're, not you're saying you need a spare you are you need, need a, room. a spare room you i mean need it's to not live in a in a more than one bedroom uh, yeah apartment it would it takes up some it takes up some space it takes up some space 
Uh, but so it, it's sound quality though. And the usability at that time was like unmatched. It is so mm. good at coming up with crazy sounds, but also making some very like, like stereotypical 80s sounds, like like Blade Runner sounds. Like this is the future music mm -hmm. sound. Um, this is Vangelis' mm -hmm. sound. But it had, it, here's the thing though that it had with it. And again, this is 1977. It had velocity mm -hmm. sensitive keys. What that means is as the, depending on the pressure you put on the key bed, it changes mm -hmm. the pitch. So oh. sensitive, lighter sound, mm. heavier, heavier sound. Very awesome. Uh, it also wow. had aftertouch, which is just a different thing when you're playing keyboard and such. I'm not entirely always familiar with what it does. But um, again, that's pretty crazy at the time, given that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a nice addition, let's say, at, yes. in 1977. Yes. But the crazier thing, too, is that those effects and other effects on the instrument could be applied to individual voices, not just all of them. What that means is, at, let's say two of your eight uh, oscillators, your eight sound sources, could have effects on them or could have like the velocity sensitive things, but the others don't. So it allows you to layer while you're playing something, mm. which is crazy. Like that's very actually interesting. We don't even have that that much on basic synths. Um, wow. Now, Zan, guess the price of this <laughs> overpriced piece of gear. Oh my god! Even, and this is—I'm um, talking base. We're we're gonna price it based on like what it was at the time because it might be more now. Oh god! Um, well, I mean, even from the way you described it, it sounds so big. It's this is definitely a reverb local pickup only, right? <laughs> oh no one's, my god! No one's I paying just, to ship. I just checked right? the price on reverb. Yeah, I don't. I, I, let's see, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm yeah. No, guess... you have to. You could ship it. You could ship it. It's not like that. Okay, that I, big, you know I what? Guess. Okay, this sounds more niche. Um, so I'm going to say 1500. Dang. Okay. Hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. You're not in, you're in the middle. You're in a mid ground. I'm on reverb. I'm on reverb.com right now. Uh, so you said 15,000. No, no, no. I, I said 1500. 15. Oh, what? I thought you said 15. Oh no, no. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. So I got that really Wait, wrong. Wait, 1500, like. $1,500. $1,500. Yeah, no. <laughs> Never mind. Oh. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. I would say is that, That's probably what the shipping costs. That is probably... Let's, let's find out. I'm going to look at one right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess so you the got, right shipping. So I, I, I... Like I... Okay, so original cost was about $6,000 in the 70s, 77. I'm oh, looking God. at one on... Now, this is also from the UK, but I'm looking at one right now on Reverb. I'll check this one, mm -hmm. see if it's US. Oh, no, they're yeah. all from the UK, apparently. Um, this is going for, this is a Yamaha CS80, $56,804. Holy And cow. the shipping is 1262 US dollars. Who is just casually <laughs> shopping know. for that much of I something don't know. on Reverb? Overpriced gear, uh, man. Overpriced oh gear. Oh my God. Okay. It all is right. nutty. So I, I, I missed the mark. I assumed that this would be less because who on earth would take this in? This is one of the most famous synths, man. I mean, like I oh, said, it's God. like the size of an electric piano. That's probably a better description than what I was giving. Mm. So it's but big, even, but not... But even like a, an electric piano, you can pick up a, an original electric piano that's been serviced for like four to five grand, I think. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, this does like three times the amount that does like tech wise like it's not like i'm talking this thing is crazy yeah. and it's got a lot of old bells and whistles in it but yeah mm -hmm. uh i think kurt vile has one i think he used it on his new album uh -oh. so people can afford these 
but he's famous, so that's probably why. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this actually was a, you know, this was expensive. It was ahead of its time, but it was very expensive well, yeah, even in the seventies. Dollars in the seventies. Yeah, it's still a lot. So th- that said, but that that would be well over ten thousand dollars in today's money. Yeah. So I mean, it's still, I guess, a little overpriced if you think about it. But uh, you know, no, it's still it's <laughs> because, an investment because the, because the fact that there's things that like you know can fit on your desktop that can do this exactly. Yeah. Well, you can also just buy the like uh virtual version. But yeah, this was actually described as the precursor to the OBX, which is another sequential uh, instrument, and the Juno for polyphony. This is one of like the first big polyphony instruments. Wow. But I want to talk about the other uh, in 1977 polyphony instrument okay. that also showed up in Blade Runner. And this is the Prophet 5, <laughs> which is by okay. sequential, and it's designed in 1977, but it's released in 1978 and 1984, into 1984, I should say, with unit mm-hmm. revisions. So this was designed by uh, Dave Smith and John Bowen in 1977. And the Sequential Prophet 5 is an American-made synth that's fully analog with five mm. voices this time. So we don't have quite okay. eight. Again, five voices, five oscillators. This synth's actually most famous for its use in film scoring and with popular music at the time, with it being on song, songs such as Michael Jackson's Thriller and on Madonna's Like a Virgin. It's also used by bands like Tears for Fears, The Cars, like you were mentioning, oh, okay. Devo, Phil Collins, and Radiohead. This is slight, it's about the, it's actually a little smaller, or meh, it's about the size of a Juno, Juno 6. Okay, so it's in okay. that, it's in that very portable, you know, built like a tank, very good at um, having it for stage presence, but it's also, Really, it was really sought after at this time because of it was a more budget friendly instrument and uh, it was portable, you could take it places. But it also had a this is really important it had a <laughs> it had a fully programmable memory. So, oh, what this means is that as one designs a sound within the synth by modulating filters, LFOs, envelopes, and VCOs you could save or one could save that sound exactly as it was and recall it at any time. So essentially you could create like an arsenal of of sounds for live sessions and recording and just keep Mm -hmm. and just literally go into the system, press the button and bring it back. So you wouldn't have to on stage go in there and like fix things, you know, you could just do it. So very useful. And again, this is ahead of the Juno. So I think the Juno can do something similar, but this was before it and very impressive for that time. It also was used as more of a replacement for bass lines or heavy aggressive sequences because it did have an onboard sequencer that you could use. Uh, but it's also really famous for synth wave tracks. It just has that um, sound and it's all analog. So it's, you know, thick in terms of that as well. So how much do you think this piece of overpriced <laughs> gear costs, Zan, to, in today? Oh, God, it's standard. been all over the place. Okay, I guess high. A little high on the first one, extremely okay. low on the second one. <laughs> um, okay, this uh, this sounds very impressive. The memory thing, that yeah. sounds really incredible for yeah, cool. way back. Um, when did you say this first came out? Uh, da, 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 da. It first came out in 1978. Okay, for having be able to recall something in the 70s. Oh, God. Um... I'm gonna say I'm gonna say ten grand. Okay. Let's see. <laughs> I am on reverb again. 
Dang, I think you got it. Oh, Hold on, let me yes. check. Let me check. Let me uh, check. Let me check. This is this is just this just goes to show I spend way too much time on reverb. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll give it to you. Ten thousand because there's a new there's a revised Profit Five that has just come out, and that's around three thousand dollars. Uh, so it's it's new oh. parts though, because again they're doing what Roland should do. Uh, Sequential is honestly pretty great. I will say they make some fantastic gear. This I found one on Reverb, a Sequential uh, Circus Profit Five, fully serviced with three months warranty. Uh, Ten thousand three hundred eighty-seven dollars. Oh, so okay. yes, well, well, much into that price at the time. Uh, it would have. Co- well, how much did it cost? Uh, it was about like three into the 3000s range at the time. So it was still pretty so expensive, but not That's kind of interesting. I guess that that's an example of one that's held pretty close to its value then, if it was three grand. Yeah. Let me, like, yeah. actually... I want to double check, because now I've, I've like, completely... Uh... Okay, three, it was about $4,000. It was about $4,000, give or take. See, here's, here's the thing, though. It's, like, I think... So $1,500, like, yeah. Like, Bruce Springsteen's super famous telecaster he bought in the 70s for like a hundred dollars right you know like it's a it so so even at the time it seems like a crazy investment a crazy justification to have these yeah oh yeah no i mean it's they're expensive i mean but sequential circuits like literally is they are building these things from scratch it's all american made like it is it is like the, it's in a way, in a way it's like the RM Williams of the synth world or the Red Wings hmm. of the synth. No, the Red Wings, the Red Wings of the synth world. So, because they still make stuff and they're still great. You know, you can get a Profit Rev 2 for like two grand. I just don't have two grand to spend on one. Um, okay. All right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, if we made terrible decisions, we could buy this as opposed to the, uh, the $56,000 one. Yeah. I'm not buying a CS80. I mean, there's a synth company that. I think it's the Black Corporation built a CS80 clone that's called Deckard's Dream. Still runs about $4,000, but it's significantly smaller and lighter, and it sounds incredible. So Mm. that would be what I would spend my money on if I was looking to buy a CS80. I'm not buying a big one. Um, Gotcha. Well, I feel much less guilty for how much my guitar costs. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, you could be one of these people, Sam. Um, Mm -hmm. And now I just want to go to our last synth here to sort of wrap things up, which it's Mm -hmm. very, very famous. It's very iconic. And you probably have heard this name in passing, even if you know nothing about synths. And this is the Mini Moog by (sighs) Moog. And it was made in 1970 to 1981. Moog. Exactly. Are you, so you're a Moog, not a Moog person? Oh, is it Moog? Did I say Moog? Oh, boy. Well, I think, I think this is a, this is a point of contention, Mm, isn't it? Have I just, have I outed myself? It's like named, it's like named after a guy as like Robert Moog or something. You're you're actually correct. Yeah, that's exactly what his name is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I think you're right. I do think it's... I can't believe it's another Joe Moat scenario. <laughs> I think you're right. It's Moog, and I say Moog because it's two O's. Leave me be. Have I that now? That is true. It is. I think you're right. I think it's a Moog, but whatever. It, yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I think you're fine. I'm not. I know someone on the the internet will yell at me for this, but I don't care. De- definitely so. on, on 8 Voice Chan. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm just going to continue saying it the way I am, though. So the Mini Moog or the Mini Moog is a fully monophonic uh, analog synthesizer. So unlike polyphonic, monophonic means that it can only play one note at a time. 
Uh, but that can that's still fine. It has its own. It doesn't mean one thing's better than the other because it allows you to um, use sequences and stuff to make some interesting sound decisions. So again, monophon monophonic one, polyphonic multiple. So right. it had. But, but the thing is, even though it's monophonic, it does have three VCOs inside of it, and it, which means it has three oscillator voices. And it was designed and manufactured by Moog Company in 1970. So you got me saying it now. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was created, though, as a portable substitute to the Moog synth. And it was the right. first synth. This is the first synth sold in retail stores. So you could like go to a shop and buy one. Which is kind of crazy because a lot of those other synths wow, you really yeah. couldn't just like. Well, yeah, you go. probably had to like order like this stuff, right? You like, had to order like a CS80. Also, like, a how sequential. on earth would you know what it sounded like? And then suddenly oh. you just get all these computer parts in the mail. Well, I think the people who were originally buying this stuff were like either making it or yeah. were part of bands that these companies were like, hey, try our thing, and then they did. Yeah, it So just, it was I, much I smaller. That, I guess that's the, that's the thing that's so fascinating to me about this stuff is, um, again, like we were saying before, you know, seeing the, the potential of it, but you would almost have to be a Brian Eno, someone yeah. who was um, already a musician, already established, that then gets their hands on something like this because... They have the resources, uh, you know, to say like, oh, I know what I can do with this. Yeah, um, yeah, I would agree. Because like all of if, if you look at like all of these experimental musicians, you know, quite a few of them have pretty extensive formal uh, musical training. Um, and I think that because I, I did take that um, history of sonic art class oh, uh, yeah. in, in grad school. And it was so interesting because all of these people, you know, wanted to experiment with these new sounds that just were they, they were new. There was nothing else that sounded like it. It sounded like modernity because yeah. it was a sound that existed in the world that no one had ever heard before. Yeah. And I mean, I think that ultimately is sort of the fascinating thing uh, about synths. You can sort of make mm. them sound like anything and the, the possibilities yeah. there, but you would have to be open to um, the potential of noise to be music. Uh, yes. Yeah. If, if I think about it in terms of, like something I can understand. Like I, I've been thinking quite a bit about like Jimi Hendrix lately. Uh, and, you know, he is the guitarist that people talk about as like the greatest guitarist of all time. And, you know, there's the people that will obviously say, well, you know, from a technical perspective, you know, Jimmy, uh, you know, you can, you can find a 12 year old on the internet on YouTube that can play Jimi Hendrix note for note and then can turn around and, you know, play classical music and stuff like, right. But I, I think, I think the thing that you have to recognize about a musician like that is thinking about what guitar looked like before him. And then after him where, uh, you had distorted guitar, you had some guitar effects Mm -hmm. But in his short life, if you think about how he took things that 
would not have sounded like music that would have just sounded like out of control noise and to like harness it into something that sounds so musical and so beautiful. I think that's, I think it's the, the, why I like some really distorted, crazy guitar music. Like I love, I love this, that type of guitar playing. I love grunge. I love things that have this, um, something that sounds like it's, it's teetering on Mm. the edge of losing control of the instrument of losing control of the sound and why I don't really like metal and thrash metal. Yeah. Because it's almost like they're too good. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> yeah, they're too good at it musically. Right. Because to me, I'm interested in the fact that I'm in, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated, like no matter how many times I hear it, to listen to Smells Like Teen Spirit and to listen to the way that Kurt's guitar sounds like a buzzsaw. Mm. Like it's not even immediately recognizable as as a musical instrument. Yeah. And it's ultimately I think why I love just such raw sounding uh like music like that is it stands in such contrast to everything else. Yeah, yeah. It's uh it, it and I and I'm com- again, I'm coming at this as a, as a guitar player and you know how to play more instruments than me, yeah. but I, I don't know that that's, that's sort of my take on like mm-hmm. th- this idea of like, of lassoing a sound and yeah. And then trying to uh, turn it into music to turn noise into music. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, okay, so yes, I, I agree. I mean, I think in, in modular sense, that is very much the philosophy. Like, you are working with noise, and you're working with the, the essence of sound, digital sound yeah. or analog sound, right? It's electronics. Yeah. It's electricity creating a noise, and you have to yeah. harness it. You have to literally modulate and turn those knobs and patch in a cable or two and mess up, and it doesn't matter, to make, like, a note, you know? Right. On this, let's take the mini Moog, for instance. There's a keybed that is programmed to do that. Now, if you mess with yes. your tuning, then it's going to throw stuff off. But you, so the keyboard is already placing this in the realm of we can use the Western scale to get sounds that'll sound chromatic to each other. Mm-hmm. However, if you detune it and you throw off the pitch and you mess with stuff, then you're entering crazy, wacky place of music. Now, if I could actually maybe jump to the story of how this was even built, and then we'll go and play our game with the price, uh, this might mm. actually shine some light on why people were so fascinated with this. And oh, yes. so when the when the Mini Moog was actually first being developed, they actually only Robert Moog specifically only expected to sell about a hundred of them. That was the goal. It was like we're just going to try to break even and sell a hundred of these bad boys. You know, someone somewhere will probably like it. Hmm. However. When Robert Moog became acquainted with former evangelist and musician David Vancouvering, Vancouvering star I don't know if you know who this is, I personally don't, but he started showing it to musician friends of his. 
and was literally like showing off this crazy weird machine. And was he like gonna replace like the organ in his mega church with it? I guess. Well, apparently he could was you, a former. Could you imagine like a, like a baptist like a revival like type thing? But instead of that, instead of that cheesy organ music in the <laughs> it's, background, it's just a it's, Luke, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be kind of amazing. Won't you give? Yeah, Won't to the you sweet, give to the Lord. This, this was expensive. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, he started showing it to music friends of his, musician friends of his, and it started becoming very popular amongst uh, the psychedelic and countercultural scenes. So how he kind of started doing this, though, it was Vancouvering also showed it to his friend, Glenn Bell. Apparently they were acquaintances. Now, you hmm. may be asking, who's this Glenn Bell? Because I had that's what I asked when I was reading this. And okay, he is actually yes. the creator of Taco Bell. Believe it or not. What? Yes, unless this is fake and what? I read fake news, but that's what I've heard. So <laughs> I could be dead wrong, honest <laughs> to God. I'll admit it. On the, I'll admit it here. But that's what I read, and I was blown away. Um, huh? Yeah, weird. Who actually let him hang on like one of I guess like an island or something he had, and basically allow him to bring people over and see the synth and show it off, and people loved it, and and it inspired him to make synth food. Nice. I guess. I mean, <laughs> synth soul food, synthetic soul food, synthetic soul. Food. Oh, that might have to be the title. Um, that's really good, actually. Uh, so anyway, yeah, weird, strange acquisition story. But essentially, because of that relationship that allowed uh, Vancouvering to just show this thing off, and I'm sure he was getting some money for it. He basically got to show it to a bunch of psychedelic like you know, music fans and musicians and people who want, like that, you know, the Hendrix, like wanted the weird sound. And the mini mo- the mini Moog ended up being produced for 13 years. And instead of 100 models, they made 12,000. And oh. some of these people who bought it, for instance, was, it was popular with artists such as Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, mm-hmm. Sun Ra, Emerson Lake and Palmer, Kraftwerk, oh. and then later ABBA too. So this oh, got around, okay. like this was a popular machine. Yeah. So and that's, that's and quite a roster of people. So yeah, this also, you know, it was it was very popular in prog rock and jazz and disco and early electronic music, but its production of the original star- stopped in 1981 after the sale of Moog. However, after Robert Moog bought back his, the rights of his company in 2002, he designed and updated the version a new version called the Mini Moog Voyager. Uh and that mm. is actually what appears on like C418 C418's Minecraft soundtrack and a bunch of other music in the 2000s. So you see mm-hmm. those because they were really small. Well, smaller than these machines and they could fit in a rack and stuff too. Still when very does, expensive. But. When does Korg come on the scene? Korg is here. I just didn't pick one because of time uh. and because um, Korg shows, Korg makes moves like in the late 80s. Like that's when they start taking over. But are, as are they like copies of other No, they were doing their own existing thing. Existing things? No, okay. No, no, they're no. Not, they're they're not legit. like they're not like a Behringer. Okay. No, Behringer is a new concept. Like, you have to understand, like, these guys are kind of, they're looking at what each other are making, but they all fulfill some sort of different niche. Like, gotcha. the, okay. like Korg has, like, the Korg Poly 800 that's competing with the Juno, and it's ah. cheaper than the Juno, for so, instance. So it's but, like, none of these are like, uh, it, it's not like store brand. No, you know, no, 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 uh, not yet. Not yet. It's too yeah, new. Okay. In the nineties, yes, would... <laughs> but not yet. Like, cause, cause, Ro- like, um, Korg will compete with Roland later on for like drum machines and stuff. But also, Korg is doing like 
its own polyphonic synths. They have some crazy old ones that are even older than some of these that are the electronics on them are nuts. I, I personally just these are the this is the top list of like the most famous synths, and they're personally my favorite, so I'm biased. Yes. Korg now has a lot of cool stuff that holds its own as it at an affordable price and is user friendly. But Korg yes. also kind of was all over with different things too. Also, like for instance, Akai is should be technically on this list because of some of their synths. But like they didn't get popular for synths; they got popular for drum machines and for MPCs, uh, which is its gotcha. own conversation we could talk about one time. But that they shifted the music industry of like how people can produce stuff. And then mm -hmm. even like you know you get the Roland TR one o TR o eight. You know these like drum oh, machines yes. that let you do things. The Lin. Uh, drum machine like all this that's a, it's its own kind of like crazy side of this history i think but... the, the original is the 808 i think the tr08 yeah you're there, right I, like... I gave you the cheap code version the tr <laughs> it's the 808 what, you're trying to you're trying to pass off a tr08 as an 808 <laughs> yeah, on me come own. on man i know man i know i'm messing up my own there's these things have long names leave me be they do they're all numbers i think the <laughs> thing is they need to have like yeah like the profit and Profit's you know, a like, cool name. It's a cool no, name. No, that's a that's a great name. I mean, they need to do like like I think Moog it's Moog that does the matriarch and Yeah, the, Moog Matriarch, the, Moog Mom. Yeah, like like they need they need to stick with like names like that. Cause like it's uh you know, th those are like the memorable things. The Telecaster, oh, yeah. Stratocaster, yeah. Les Paul. You know? Yeah. The the only Gibson that people remember with a number end is ES three thirty five. And they make so many other <laughs> ES models, but nobody remembers those. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they should be taking notes. Um but as we wrap up this section of the mini Moog and also our instruments that I have picked out, Zan. Yeah. How much do you think? <laughs> <laughs> how much do you think this overpriced piece of gear costs now oh, and then God. i'll tell you um, what it cost back then and uh, I'm, I'm also to, sorry to like be specific the original original like to buy an original today okay okay um hmm, hmm, hmm. okay after hearing you talk about it uh i'm gonna say i'm gonna say six thousand Mm, okay okay uh well if you were buying one from the 2000s it probably cost about that if you want one oh. specifically from this time you're not far off you're not far off though uh from if you want one from 1970 to the 80s like that era you're mm -hmm. looking at spending about uh, i'm looking at reverb right now about eight thousand nine hundred twenty dollars uh, for a 71 mm. to 82 or 81 model maybe next maybe next maybe year. next year maybe next year uh at the time, though, and this is, of course, like 70s money, it was $1,500. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, that was your 1500 I guess, for before. Much, <laughs> much more affordable. I mean, I guess not that much more affordable, but, like, you could buy it. You know, someone could buy this. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's it's, so, it's priced, like... Was that, like, 3000 Yeah, like, like the, the, these are priced, like, other instruments, you know? Yeah, like, this would... You could buy an expensive guitar or this, but here's you could you could buy an expensive piano. Exactly, like I guess exactly. with that, I, I don't. I'm trying to think like what a, what a nice piano would cost back then. A lot, I'm sure. Yeah, because they they are yeah. expensive. 
But yeah. um, yeah. So for fifteen one thousand five hundred dollars for the original. But mm-hmm. I think like something to keep in mind too with some of these synths is it's like it can get just as expensive with guitars, like we said. I mean, a Rickenbacker is like two thousand dollars, right? Like a Rickenbacker bass, I guess specifically. So maybe a little mm-hmm. more, you know. And same with some of these pianos. So since since they're more money because of the stuff that goes in them, and yeah. You know, even like modern day since like you have Novation's Peak or its Summit, you know, the Summit, it would be more akin to like the size of a Juno. I mean, that's like a $2,000 synthesizer. It does a heck of a lot more stuff and it's kind of amazing. It's got its flaws, but, you know, 2000 is no, no cheap sum. I mean, that's a MacBook. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of crazy when you want to spend money on outboard gear and same with modular, which is a money pit. Literally, it's so expensive to even get started. It's intimidating to even begin. I will say having dipped my toe in it, it is satisfying to just explore sounds like with the original things or like with gear that lets you plug in stuff and turn knobs and you make mm-hmm. mistakes and figure it out. It's it's really fun. Like it is just this kind of unlike anything else experience. But now, you know, you also have synths built into just like every MacBook with GarageBand or yeah. Logic or Pro Tools or whatever thing you're using, Ableton, you know, they're the yeah, same yeah. concept, I mean, but why, why Why spend all the money on a synthesizer when I can, uh, you know, drag a metal chair across the floor? Hey, that's a, people sample that. You can sample that. <laughs> You just need a good microphone. You're good to go. I mean, but you could also, yeah, yeah. but using the same technique though, like using how we modify sounds on a synth, you can put a tactic case, sustain some envelopes, some reverb, you know, throw in a little LFOs here and there and a filter. You just turn that chair into a synth. Yeah. yeah. Send it to, send it to William Eyelash and her brother Phineas and Ferb. Yeah. <laughs> Let them handle it. You know, it'll be on the next <laughs> album. Mm-hmm, the good mm-hmm. guy. Mm. well wow joe this was an incredible presentation yeah Um, i learned (laughs) so much about synths and i hope everyone uh enjoyed uh listening to you talk about it as much as i did uh and it also it's really great to hear you just talk about something you're so passionate about Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, no, I I think I've had this pent up for a while. I didn't realize mm-hmm, it until mm-hmm. we started talking. It, it's it's a you know it's a, it's a passion of mine. It's definitely interesting. I mean, I've spent so much time just researching these passively because I wanted to buy my next piece of gear because it is an addiction for sure. Uh, luckily, I just have I have impulse control slightly, so I haven't bought any of these things because it's insane. But it is fascinating. Like I think there's a lot to unlock with this type of musical equipment i think some of it is overrated though i truly do believe that like there there is an element to be said about having an original juno and being inspired and making music with like one of the best since ever created there's also something to be said about it being very overpriced for what it is you know i mean it is a decaying mm-hmm. synth from the 80s it has problems it's super right. outdated and it's not like a guitar a of, that's sort of, of timeless. A lot of wires corroding uh, yeah a lot that, of cheap behind that products wood paneling exactly but They'll sound beautiful. So you have to make decisions, I guess. <laughs> and I deal with this every day. But no, it was it was really great. I'm glad we could talk about this. I hope it wasn't too much of me rambling and ranting about basically beeps and boops and electronic noises and what a, what the heck's a VCO or a VCF. But uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, again, thank you. And uh, this is this has been a very informative uh, informative tour. Uh, oh, I'm you- glad. Uh, didn't 
phone it in, but phone is phone it in. A pop- phonic it in. Hmm. Something there. There's something uh, there. Anyways. Uh, yes. Well, uh, I think this takes us uh, into everyone's fam- favorite, uh, critically acclaimed uh, segment, Stick It or Ticket. Oh, man. I'm excited for this one. Yes. Uh, do you do you have one? Do you want to go first? Why don't you go first? I've been talking a lot. Okay. Okay. No worries. Um. So actually, I saw this on my way to uh you and your family's ah. house for Thanksgiving. Um, Ooh. This one. Uh, this was fantastic because it was right after we passed uh the <laughs> Donald J. Trump uh national forest or state forest. Oh, okay. Which I didn't know existed. I didn't know that existed either. <laughs> um so then like clockwork we spot this like kind of this little sedan yeah kind of older car uh and on the back written with uh not even proper bumper stickers uh but with black like electric tape (laughs) oh my god is donald trump plus carrie lake uh and then I swear to God, I thought it also said brony. Hmm. Um, okay. But as we got co- closer, we realized uh, they had just spelled out Bronx with the tape. <laughs> uh, but what was even more confusing, and again, this was weird because we just passed that forest. Um, they uh, they had all of these uh, environmentalist stickers. And there was like another oh. thing that was like, that was like stop uh, stop oil and uh, all all of these like national park stickers. It was a very what? weird vibe. Mm. So I I was just really perplexed by it. I mean, and you know, I love that drive between New York and New Jersey. You just really see it all. Also, right. <laughs> every time I pass Mawa, I become uh, Borat. Mawa. Mawa. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Mawa. Yeah. okay all right that's a solid geez what a what a contradiction truly i mean i have mm-hmm. met people like that so it does it does exist um all right i have i had one planned out that i might just say anyway because it was crazy uh and then on my drive home today uh i'm i had a different encounter but let me just say my original bumper sticker because the other one's technically not a bumper sticker so okay. for mine uh, i was driving on my way home a few days ago i guess a week ago and I saw a bumper sticker on, you guessed it, a pickup truck that said <laughs> in, in in purple text, it was like Times New Roman, on a white field. So a white bumper sticker. Uh, okay. The media- like it's, like it's, like <laughs> like it's a it's, battle sticker. Yeah, like it's a sigil. <laughs> uh, I have to. I think it's just natural to call, you know, we have to use bumper sticker terminology like a flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, it, it just said in the purple text, the media is lying to you. That's it. Oh, and I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, I guess which but, media? Just it, what, the, media. the media. Wait, so the bank? Couldn't Sam. you, couldn't you count a bumper sticker as a form of media? Hmm, contradiction. Yeah, I guess you could. I mean, it's a piece of merchandise they bought from someone, so or they made it themselves. So that was like the thing I saw, and I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna have to say this. But I'm literally leaving the parking lot of work today. Mm-hmm. There was a sedan, and it was, it was, it was painted. <laughs> It was painted the same color scheme of the Jurassic Park Jeep from the movie Jurassic Park with the uh, logo and everything on it, Zan. Oh, everything. God. And the license. Well, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say the license, but it was Jurassic. And I was like, you gotta be joking. 
It was you know they you know they wanted a jeep so bad, dude. I know. I wonder if it has to do with the paleontology park there. I I wanted to know. I wanted to know if if they beep their horn, it's the sound like the the main theme of Jurassic Park. <laughs> like I needed to do that. Uh, like it's a GTA car. Anyway, that made my night. So I literally <laughs> saw this today. Is that a mod in Grand Theft Auto? Yeah, you, well, it's not the Jurassic Park, but you can make different sounds. I mean, I've seen I've seen the mod where you can turn it into um, uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> you could do that in Skyrim too, which is insane. oh yeah, yeah, that's is what it, I'm. Where they're dragons? I think I, I think I saw Winnie. I think I saw Winnie the Pooh mod GTA. I mean, any anybody can honest to god mod GTA with anything. So I'm sure you can just be Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, those are my submissions. Ah, fantastic. Um, well, uh, I guess we should move on next to uh, what's going on with you, Joe. What's going on outside with- of the the museum, of course? What's going on with me? Uh, not too much. Been working on some music. Been working on some art. I have. Well, I get. I mean, it's in the works. There's an exhibition in the works, but I believe there's going to be one in New York City and Chelsea that I'm a part of called Yonder Crush. I think that's what they decided on. So I'll give some details mm. for that in the weeks to come. I think it's going to be in January. So I'll 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 figure it okay. out. I don't know. I'm I'm nice. not in charge of any of this. But yeah, so I'm in part of exhibitions. Could be fun. <laughs> and I believe the film festival, the In and Out film festival that I'm a part of in Poland is airing. Like. December 15th so I'll, my sh- my film When Light Takes Form is a part of that and will be shown there so I'm very excited about that uh, yeah. and that's pretty much it maybe gonna be releasing some music in December might miss that, that Friday date so I don't know cause it's not mixed yet so we'll see but keep an eye out on that as well uh, but that's that's all that's going on with me how about you Sam what do you got going on um so uh well, first of all, congratulations again. Oh, thank the, you. Uh, thank you. Yes. Um, so uh, let's see. I have a couple of things going on. Of course, uh, I will be teaching a class in August at the uh, Joseph C. Campbell uh, Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina. Be on the lookout for those classes as they become available. Nice. Um, there's limited space in there. Uh, also, I am going to be having a show at the Ellen Simpson Gallery in March or April of next year. I'll have those, uh, dates out soon, but that is, uh, the Ellen Simpson Gallery, uh, in, uh, Hudson, New York. I'm extremely excited about that, and there may be a certain special, uh, musical debut there. Ooh. Uh, this is my first solo show, so you know I'm gonna go all out. You gotta, you gotta. Congratulations yes. again. Thank you, thank you. Um, but that's extremely exciting. Um, and, uh, other than that, I am going to be posting, hopefully by the time this is out, I will be having some, uh, brand new work up on my website. Hey, so if you're nice. looking for, uh, any last minute holiday gifts, uh, you might want to, uh, check that out. Sick. If you'd like to follow the museum after hours, we are at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. If you have, uh, any, comments uh or letters you'd like read on the show uh for me and joe you can email us at uh uncannycountymuseum at gmail.com 
Uh, if you want, you can check out our Patreon. We've got some very, very cool uh, rewards at all different levels there. Uh, if you'd like to find me after hours, I'm at Xanasaurus on Instagram. And I'm Josemino Art on Instagram. And from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Josemino. And I've been Robert Moog <laughs> Jr. Oh.